Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, yesterday we found out two probes will be launched into the Greenbelt land development problems. How do they differ and what are the results going to be? Well, we'll discuss that. What are some of the legitimate concerns that come from Ontario's controversial plan to expand private delivery of public health? And we will discuss all the big topics like encampments, transparency, and Airbnb rentals. It's all coming up with Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath, and it's all part of the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's turn to another controversial policies of uh, this board government. Uh, that being, of course, the uh, Greenbelt uh, incursion that many people are very, very concerned about, and I think justifiably so as well. Uh, yesterday, we found out that there are going to be at least two explorations into the government's conduct there. There could maybe be more down the road. But uh, the uh, Integrity Commissioner has announced that uh, he, of course, is going to be uh, looking into a complaint. And uh, at the same time, we're told the Ontario Auditor General may well be doing that. But uh, but back to the Integrity Commissioner for just a second. Uh, a lot of folks wondering just what's going to happen, what's going to be the scope of the investigation. But as uh, uh, Colin DeMello tells us, Colin, of course, is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. This uh, is an ethics probe, and it's different from an illegal or from a legal probe. Here's what Colin has to say. The NDP's complaint was strong enough that the integrity commissioner decided that he was going to launch a probe. And this is really an ethics probe, right? Did the minister or the did the minister specifically break any of the ethics rules that they have to abide by in this Greenbelt deal in any way, whether it was direct or indirect? So that's the essence of that, and that, that I just want to temper everybody's expectations. However, we are told, Colin, in his reporting uh, from Queen's Park yesterday, also told us uh, that the OPP is uh, watching the investigations that are ongoing, and uh, we don't know what they're going to do about that yet, but that's something that's out there down the road. So what is going to happen, and uh, are we surprised at, at the feedback about this and how this is an issue that doesn't seem to want to go away, nor should it, I think. It's a, it's a major policy change here. Uh, and a lot of folks are upset about this. Joining us to talk about this is uh, David Crombie. David is a former federal cabinet minister, of course. He's a former mayor of Toronto and also a former chair of the Greenbelt Council. Uh, David Crombie, it's a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thank you so much for the Thanks. time today. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be back. As we've talked about this, David, in the past, and I know your passion for, for environmental issues and your passion for the Greenbelt and the importance of the Greenbelt, when this incursion was finally announced after, the, I think it was 31 denials, somebody had done the count on this between the, the Premier and the Municipal Affairs Minister, uh, there was outrage, and, and I think that's justified. But are you surprised that this issue just doesn't seem to want to go away, that people are just hanging on to this? Well, people are hanging on to it because it's really, really important. Uh, and I think there's a couple of things that need to be clear right at the beginning. The, the government would have us believe that this is about housing or affordable housing even, but it's not. Um, this is not one thing this is not about is affordable housing because even its own task force, the government's own task force, indicated that the issue was not more land, but different kinds of building. So we cleared away right away the notion from the government keep on saying that it's about housing. It is not. Um, it, it, it's What it's really about is, it, 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 in effect, the trashing of ecological and agricultural assets in the Greenbelt and the slow unraveling of the Greenbelt. That's why people are hanging in. This is really important. Well, what I find fascinating about this, too, and just even on the feedback I'm getting on this program over the last few weeks since they finally made this announcement, I think the green belt has grown on people. I, I, I don't mean to be trite about that, but I mean, there was some controversy when the McGinney government brought this in, but I think we understand the importance of it. I think Ontario embraces that right now. And I think a lot of us were shocked that the government would actually make this move. 
for sure. And as a matter of fact, there was a recent poll, I think about well, a few weeks ago, uh, that uh, 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 people, uh, about 70, 75% are in favor of the Green Belt and what it does for them. Um, uh, that, uh, that's an enormous number of people, uh, it, it, given the way in which there are many issues that people have to concern themselves with. So there's no doubt that it's popular with people and it's popular for good and sufficient reason. So the, I, the government, I think, is going to have to pay more attention than it has. And it's just delightful to those of us who've been working hard in this field uh, that to have the, uh, the Auditor General, the Integrity Commissioner, uh, weigh in on this. Uh, and we're hoping as well that the federal government is going to weigh in on it in some way as well. It's, it's been a long process, though, hasn't it, David? I mean, I, you know, we, we talk about where we've come in Ontario. I mean, we're we're blessed with so many beautiful natural assets here uh, that we uh, always appreciated and maybe underappreciated at times. Uh, and, and I guess the process started really under Premier Bill Davis. I mean, he started the Conservation Authority movement across the province, uh, and we've embraced that over the years. And then, of course, the McGuinney government with the Greenbelt itself. Is it, could you classify what, what the Ford government is proposing to do here as a massive uh, step backwards? Oh, for sure. It is absolutely a step backward. And, and in, in many ways, this is a Tory government. And, and indeed, the, the, uh, the early stages, as you well point out, the early stages of, of building the Green Belt were done by, by, by conservative governments, by Robarts, by, 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 by the Davis governments. Uh, so it's not only a step back, but it's a step back for the conservative, progressive conservative party of, of Ontario. And I, I wish the conservative caucus at Queen's Park would wake up and find their spine and their mouth and speak out. That's an important part, though. This is not a partisan issue. And I know some people are simply trying to classify it as such. Uh, liberal, New Democrat, conservative, it's not. The environment belongs to all of us. It's not, it doesn't belong to any one political party. Uh, and we've seen that, as you mentioned, with uh, the works of uh, Premiers uh, Robarts and, and Davis, uh, even Brian Mulroney with the Acid Rain Treaty. Uh, some Absolutely. people are still wondering how he ever got Ronald Reagan to sign on to that, but he did. Uh, and that was a mon monumental environmental step as well. So it, 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 this is nobody, no political party can take ownership of this. It's, it's, I think the people of Ontario and the people of Canada that should take ownership. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I just signed off in a letter a couple of weeks ago uh, on the Rouge Valley and the, and the Rouge National Park, which I've been involved with uh, from the beginning. And, and it's, uh, it's signed by Pauline Brose, who's a former conservative cabinet minister from Ottawa. And, and a number of people who are part of the Rouge Valley Park and the Friends of the Rouge are, are conservative. So it is not partisan. Um, but that's why I wish some, some of, uh, some of the, pe the people at Queen's Park in the Conservative Party would speak out. What do you expect to happen here? And I, I don't want to get too deeply into the, the legalities of this, but as uh, Colin DeMello told us just at the beginning of our conversation, this, this is not a legal uh, inquest that's going on here. Uh, the Integrity Commissioner uh, certainly has some power here and, and certainly uh, some leeway to, to be able to make statements about this, but, but uh, will it sway the government in any way? I'm not sure. Uh, first of all, the of course, the... the uh, the Auditor General will be, will be looking at the value for money, and that's got to do with this great discrepancy by, of what the, the, uh, land, the, the current landlords paid for it, agricultural prices, and what they'll get if the government changes. It's a, it's a big boondoggle. So they're going to, she will be looking at, the Auditor General will be looking at the value for money. The Integrity Commissioner is looking at the ethics. And I think, the, I think once they make their reports, there'll be enough public opinion. That the, that the provincial government will be looking for some way in which they can get out of their, uh, the, 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 the problem they caused themselves. 
and, and again, you mentioned about the, the federal government. Now, this is the provincial policy, of course, the Greenbelt policy. Uh, I know that the, the federal minister has said, you know, that they have concerns about that, quote unquote, air quotes on that. Uh, but they don't have any real power to intercede here, do you? Do they? Well, but not, not to intercede in terms of power, but they have things that they can do, which will expose the story even more. And I think help form public opinion. Don't forget that right beside, cheek by jowl, uh, 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 with the with the uh, agriculture preserve that's going to be now be built on, uh, is is the is the uh, is the Rouge National Park, and that's a major investment by the federal government, and they have at least the opportunity, if they choose to do so, to have a, a, a an environmental impact study uh, on what the government uh, what the provincial government is proposing, uh, and and indeed uh, that's something we've. Uh, We've suggested to to, uh, to the federal government from the Rouge Park, because uh, there has to be a sign off on that. That's absolutely right. I, I just I find it heartbreaking. I mean, you know, because I think we embrace uh, what we have here, and it, it it breaks my heart when we drive up north here, and you know, I, I see you are now entering the Greenbelt, and I'm sure you've seen that sign dozens of times too. It's just north on Highway 10, just north of Brampton, and then about absolutely. 500 feet away is 500 feet away is hey the, the new proposed location of the new highway, and I figure wait a second, there's there's an incongruity here somewhere, isn't there? Oh, for sure. Uh, we, uh, we we too often take it for granted, as you point out. Uh, but I think once people think that somehow it's going to take it away from them, it's pretty heartening to see that that the reaction from people, whatever walk of life they're in, the people are opposed to it. The provincial government better pay attention because they're going to get hurt if they don't. I mean, to put this in context, and because uh, I know some people, you know, they, they want to make you know this about extremes. It's either black or it's white. Uh, it's not just about highways or, or preserving our, our, our natural environmental treasures. Uh, you can do both, but it's a matter of where you do them and when you do them. I mean, you know, each and every one of these projects, including, as you mentioned, the, the housing that we so much dearly need in this province, uh, can be done outside the Greenbelt. And, and as you mentioned, the Premier's own commission told him that. Uh, highways yes. and roads can be built, too, but they don't have to be built through the Greenbelt. Well, it's exactly right. I, I think, I think quite frankly... There's too many people on the government side who don't actually believe in the green belt the way most of us do. And I think that's at the root of it. They, they, they've really got to learn the value and importance of it ecologically, agriculturally, in terms of recreation, in terms of the sense of pride that people have in the place. Uh, they just don't get it. But I think they're slowly going to get it. I certainly hope they are. Well, and it's unfortunate that some people do make this a partisan issue. And as we just pointed out in our previous conversation, uh, this is a shared responsibility. And some great conservative premiers have uh, have moved forward on this. Uh, Dalton McGuinney's uh, the government, of course, brought the Greenbelt legislation in. But as you recall, David, uh, when he formed the Greenbelt uh, Council, uh, the first person he chose to head that was a conservative, Dr. Bob Elgie. I know a friend that you know very well. And uh, you and I Absolutely. talked in the previous conversation. My wife was one of the initial appointees uh, to the Green Belt. And uh, Bob Elgie is, is, you know, a member of the Bill Davis government. Yet here we go, a liberal premier reaching out to a, a former a progressive conservative cabinet minister to say you're the guy. And he did an outstanding job. No, good for you for remembering Bob Elgie's contribution. Both a doctor and a lawyer, that man, by the way. Yeah. Uh, a very impressive guy. And, and, of course, there's a long tradition within the progressive conservative party uh, that they were involved in conservation issues. Uh, so that's why I, I said earlier, and I'm, I'm happy to hear your own feelings on it, because uh, the, the, it is not a partisan issue. It is actually nonpartisan. And indeed, all parties have made a contribution to the well-being of, 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 uh, 
of both our, our ecological and our agricultural traditions. Well, and David, just to remind our listeners, I mean, you served, of course, in federal government, so you were the mayor of Toronto uh, and, and were an appointee, by the way, as, as the, uh, one of the chairs for the Greenbelt. Uh, and, and you resigned that position because of your concern about this government's policies. Uh, so, again, uh, this is not partisan. This is about, you know, do you truly believe in, in maintaining, uh, the, you know, the treasures that we have in this province? Yes, and, and those, those of us who were on, the, uh, on the, uh, the council at the time, the Greenbelt Council, uh, uh, all, all but three of us resigned. There were six of us resigned because we could see this coming. We could see the attitudes being formed by this new government. And, and as again, if I keep repeating it, I want to because that's true. This is a government that is flying in the face of of those of us who worked for the Conservative Party for so many years. Well, and what's disheartening for a lot of us, of course, is and I think it was Narwell has done some great reporting on this, as has the Toronto Star. And, and they've actually done the count. I think it was 31 times that both the premier and the uh, municipal affairs minister have said emphatically that they were not going to touch the green belt. Uh, yet as soon as the election was over, bingo, they, they went ahead with something like this. You have to wonder about, as you mentioned, their integrity in a situation like this. Uh, and that's one element of it. And the other element, of course, is is how they're doing this. Because uh, you and I talked about this in a previous conversation. They've pretty much taken away an awful lot of the 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 methodologies that were put in place uh, to be able to challenge these things and to be able to have a voice in the decision-making here. Uh, a lot of that stuff has been eradicated by legislation right now, and it's a very frustrating situation for all of us. No, you, you're absolutely right. The, uh, that we're, we're now talking about the Green Belt itself and the intru uh, intrusion into it, but they've passed some legislation in the past year and a half that have, have absolutely severely restricted our ability to deal with environmental progress. Uh, the, the, their, their treatment and hobbling of the uh, and narrowing down of, of, the, uh, of the, the work of the conservation authorities, which have been with us for 75 years and brought in by the Porter government, by, by uh, Dana Porter, a conservative, in 1946. They, they've, they've taken the conservation authority and hobbled them right across the province. So there are other pieces of legislation they've taken to, to restrict municipalities, restrict conservation authorities. And so they've, they've done more in a short space of time to, to, to uh, retract the, state, the, the, the space we've made, the progress we've made over the last number of years. Uh, that's why so many of us uh, could be doing maybe something else, but we're really concerned that this is a government that is hurting us and, and need, not, be, need not do so. Well, we're going to watch with great interest, uh, both uh, from the Integrity Commissioner and, of course, the Auditor General with their report and uh, just see what comes of that. There may be further action on this. David, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for spending some time with oh, us. No, thank you really very much. It. Good to talk with you again. Take care. David Crombie, a former mayor of Toronto, yeah. of course, a former federal cabinet minister in the Mulroney government and uh, a former chair of the Greenbelt Council. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're always swinging around to healthcare, isn't it? Because it's something that's so very important to each and every one of us. And and the discussion, of course, uh, not is not just about trying to relieve the pressure on the existing system. That's certainly a, a major issue here. But it's also 
in many issues, in many earth circumstances, boiled down to public versus private delivery of health care. Well, uh, Premier Ford says that his government is expanding delivery of public health care services to private centers to help eliminate the backlog of procedures caused by the pandemic. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was asked about this move during the last couple of times. He was in Saskatoon earlier this week, you may remember. And he says that his government knows how important it is to continue to invest in health care systems. And I've had some great conversations with a number of premiers, including Premier Ford and Premier Moe's been working very, very hard uh, uh, as well as part of a small group uh, looking at improving, uh, improving health care across the country. And I can say uh, we're all very much on the same page. There is a need for more money. There is a need uh, for more delivery of results uh, for families. Uh, there are some anomalies, though, that seem to be catching people's attention, and, and we need to talk about those. For instance, Health Canada uh, is what they call concerned, in quotation marks, about an Ontario company that's actually charging for virtual doctor visits. Now, this, of course, is something that, that became more significant during the pandemic and the lockdowns, uh, doing virtual visits instead of actually going into a doctor's office. Uh, it's uh, reiterating uh, that it expects provinces to fund medically necessary health services as one company raises fears of a two-tiered system. Uh, the company is called Maple. Uh, it's actually funded by Loblaw, and it's a virtual care business that's based in Toronto. Uh, they charge $69 per doctor's visit, or $30 per month for 30 visits, uh, a service that ordinarily would be free if you just said, okay, I'm not going to do this, I'm just going to go to the doctor. It's it's covered under OHIP. Uh, the Canada Health Act requires provinces and territorial health insurance systems uh, to cover all medically necessary services. Uh, that's according to Health Canada, but uh, charging Ontarians for these insured services is banned by the provincial legislation, according to the Canada Health Act. So how are these guys doing this, and is it even legal, and is it something that we need to address? Joining us for the discussion, uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Jason Profetto. Uh, Dr. Profetto is a family physician. He's also the chair of clinical skills and MD admissions with McMaster University. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Good to hear from you. It's great to hear from you again, too, because you've always got, provided a frank uh, and candid uh, discussion with us and, and a, a perspective that I think we always need to include into our assessment of what's going on here. And, and as I mentioned in our opening here, the, the debate in some circles seems to have boiled down to what kind of healthcare system do we want? Uh, is it going to be private? Uh, is it going to be for-profit? Is it going to be publicly funded? Is it going to be the system that we're, we've, many of us have grown up to? Or is there a hybrid that's workable here that's going to be fair to everybody? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think it's a good question. I mean, I've been trained and I currently work in what is largely a publicly delivered healthcare system. Um, I, I'm really cognizant about a lot of different populations and demographics that otherwise would not have access to healthcare services, I, I do I do really appreciate the the ability of a public system to deliver healthcare services to a wide variety of people, especially of people who who really do need it. Right, um, I I think part of the problem is there's there's a bit of a fallacy in in creating a binary public versus private option. I think the the hybrid options and their evolution is an interesting conversation. I, I think it's very difficult. And the one of the large reasons is because we're, we're sort of used to seeing what other countries do. And you'll see a lot of comparisons, for example, to the US or to um, other, other public systems that have failed to deliver. So I, I think there's merit in the conversation. I think it's very complex. But there's, there's got to be a level playing field here, though, shouldn't there be? And, and I guess that's one of the concerns. I'm, I don't know if you had the opportunity to see the op-ed piece from uh, Dr. Bell in the Globe and Mail yesterday. Dr. Bell, of course, uh, is a, a professor at the University of Toronto. 
uh, and because of the announcement that the premier made just the other day, of course. Uh, and he said, for instance, with cataract surgery, yeah, they do that already in Alberta and in Saskatchewan, the, the system that the, the premier here is, is describing. Uh, but it's inequitable. Uh, you know, the government funds the private clinic $650 per patient for cataract surgery. They only fund $500 to the hospitals if they're doing the exact same procedure. There's an inequity there that, that I think is going to make a few people back away and say, wait a second here, is this the right way to do this? Yeah. The, 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 so the, the other thing is at the very basis of it, and especially in family medicine or primary care, I think one of the ongoing issues is whether or not what we're doing is sustainable. So I just said that I think public health care and the delivery of it is really good because um, um, individuals that otherwise would not be able to access these services now can through a publicly covered system. However, um, I say that knowing that there's probably still one to two million Cana uh, Canadians, people in Ontario that don't, don't have regular access to a family doctor. So is what I'm saying fair and equitable? I mean, in, in reality, the truth is that it's not, right? So what we're doing in my family office and what many uh, Ontario family doctors are doing is actually really, really good. However, from a more global perspective in the province, we're, we're still missing out on a lot of people. So what do we do in that circumstance? Do we just continue to go along as is or do we start to explore private options? or hybrid options. But in doing so, where do these conversations start? And I think there's there's a very delicate interaction between the political aspect of this, the corporate aspect of it, and the medicine or doctor academic aspect of it too. And and I'm not questioning the ethics of, of any doctor, whether they're working in public or private. But it's I'm concerned about. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, you know this this particular organization called Maple. Uh, as I say, they're actually an offshoot of the Loblaw Empire. Uh, and here's how this works, as I understand it. Now, I, I'm going to mention right off the top, uh, you and I have talked about this. I've never accessed uh, the, the telehealth thing. So, But as I'm, I've done some research on this over the last couple of days, apparently if I were to call and say, okay, you know, I... I, I want to get some opinions about it. Uh, they, they don't say, just a minute here, I'll put you on to a doctor. They have a doctor call you back, you know, maybe a couple of minutes later. Well, if it's a doctor from Ontario, OHIP covers it. Even if mm -hmm. I'm, and I'm calling from Ancaster, if it's a doctor from Alberta that calls back, then they're allowed to charge me. Uh, it's, it, but it, I'm here in Ontario accessing a number here, but if they use an out-of-province doctor, apparently it's legal for them to charge me that, that $65, $69, I guess it is. It, it may be e illegal, but is it ethical? And is it really in the true spirit of, of public health care? Yeah, I, I, it's it actually, so just to comment something with, with telehealth right now, so the telehealth advisory service is actually a very good service because it's available after hours. You can call, yeah. you can get advice. One of the problems we've been seeing in the recent past, and this is going going into a very important piece of this whole conversation, is that you call, you get a call back from a nurse, um, but oftentimes what we're seeing at higher volume times is that the callback could come anywhere from 10 to 12 hours later. So, you know, it, the, the point now becomes, it, okay, so it's publicly accessed, it's free. So let's say like you have Ontario um, people calling you back, but how how good is it? How good is a resource if it's not really accessible and and how accessible should it be so should it be someone calling you back a few minutes later or is it accept is it acceptable to know that during very high volume times the the truth is that you might have to wait 10 to 12 hours there's there's the the, the other complex piece to these parts of the discussion is that where does the accountability lie and what i mean by that is that 
obviously family doc doctors in Ontario are, are and the healthcare professionals are responsible for delivering these services. So that's one leg of the stool. The government itself is very responsible for delivering access funding to these services. And then the third leg of the stool too is, is patients themselves, right? So in a, in a publicly funded system, we can't just have an endless well that you go to. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that patients have to be cognizant of how much resource they use because people who are unwell and sick will actually have to go to that well more often than people who are not. Mm -hmm. But there is a very unique relationship through this shared accountability model for all three different parties involved. And just to go back to the maple thing, to swing back to that and put an exclamation point on that, uh, they may well be providing a very important service. And as you say, you know, those call volumes can be incredible at times. Uh, to, to alleviate the situation and alleviate the angst here, all they would have to do is say, look, if I'm calling from Ontario, it's got to be an Ontario doctor or nurse practitioner that calls back to and that would eliminate that cost and and i'm not suggesting that there's any pirating going on here but i said it seems to be an easy solution that there can be some cooperation here but there have to be standards that have to be met oh man it it, it, it is complex i mean i i think it, it's 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 an interesting concept right like i think as a as a province we are responsible and accountable when i say we as a province the doctors the professionals and the province itself is responsible for delivering to the 15 million and, and change Ontarians in this province. If we are unable to do that, it seems odd to me that companies are outsourcing outside of the province, wherever that is, and then charging. To, to, to me, I think it's a reflection, almost exploiting some of the problems that we're having in the province. And these are all very temporary things. Companies like this traditionally don't last very long, and they come in, they come out. Yeah, and we're not sure just how this one's going to work out, but and it's this uh, eternal something. longevity of the company. But when when I hear these things about companies like Maple, I really do wonder. I wonder particularly about a few things. Number one, are these patients that are using these uh, services do they actually have a family doctor and just find it relatively inconvenient to access them? Is that reasonable or unreasonable, depending on the details of the circumstances? Number two, um, what what is happening at the level of the of the province? Are, are we allowing this? Do we have do we have jurisdiction to oversee, to stop, to encourage, to regulate some of these services that are coming out? And then the other thing too is that even as a family doctor and, and doctors at large, how do we respond? You, if you recall that that message from the government where. They were calling family doctors to step up and to start seeing people as much as possible weekends, evenings, and, and the bit. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, how did we respond and how did we view the whole thing, right? So I think the the collective response is a very interesting one now. And I think companies like Maple are exploiting an underlying problem that really does need to be fixed. Uh, very quickly, I've only got a minute or two left here, and I wanted you uh, uh, to jump in on one other thing. I, as I say, I read with great interest Dr. Bell's op-ed in the Globe and Mail. Uh, he suggested that, as we know, the premier is suggesting about $18 million that he wants to invest in, in more for-profit clinics so that we can move people over there. Uh, Dr. Bell's suggestion was we should be investing that in community health clinics. And uh, by his description, I mean, that's essentially what he's saying. And we know in the Hamilton area, St. Joseph's Health uh, Clinic out in the East End has been working beautifully in that regard. They do the cataracts and the day surgeries, et cetera, there. <laughs> uh, if we had more of those, maybe we wouldn't have to have this debate about private versus public. Bill, I, I am. I have a very strong opinion on this point, and, and humbly, I would suggest that I really do think I'm correct. 
and I'll be brief. I really think the solution, I truly believe this, is community-delivered healthcare with community clinics like St. Joe's, for example, where there's appropriate emergencies or urgent care departments. And in and around or of in the periphery, there are various family medicine clinics that, that employ interdisciplinary care in a well-organized, structured way. In such a way that people have access regularly and easily, reasonably, reasonably, to a family doctor and their allied services. I really do believe that is the solution. But, and maybe we'll talk about this more at another time, we're seeing fewer people go into family medicine and we're seeing fewer family doctors graduating and actually opening up comprehensive family medicine clinics. Absolutely, which is, as you say, a, a part of the discussion that uh, we'll have to put off for another day because it's pretty extensive in and itself. Uh, uh, keep being opinionated, Doctor. That's why I love you coming on the show because you you do your homework on things and and you form strong opinions, and that's that's exactly what we need in this discussion. Thanks so for uh, for this today, though. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Bill. See you at the Tie Cats game. Take care. You bet you. You bet you, Doctor Jason Profetto from McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Congratulations to Lorraine Segato, who's the lead singer for this fabulous band, uh, who's uh, going down to the uh, the Walk of Fame. Uh, A number of other Canadian uh, superstars have been in that, too. But uh, good on who? The Segato family, of course, uh, huge, huge family, very popular family uh, in the Hamilton area for so long. Her dad was a wonderful guy. And, uh, and of course, uh, so many other great songs by the Parachute Club, too. So way to go, Lorraine. Little Hamilton flavor for you here as we continue here on the Bill Kelly Show, and uh, I want to swing by to the the meeting that Hamilton City Council had this week because there were a lot of action items on this agenda, and uh, some positive action and some positive ideas coming forward from City Council and from the Mayor about uh, a number of key issues uh, that we've already picked up here uh, about uh, homelessness, of course, and and uh, tent encampments and how to deal with these sorts of things, and and also about transparency, which was a a key issue in the um, uh, the civic election that we uh, went through back in the fall. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, the mayor of the city of Hamilton, Andrea Horvath. Madam Mayor, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you back in the show. Oh my goodness, Bill. It's absolutely my pleasure. And I'm so glad that you mentioned Lorraine Segato because the minute I heard the tune, uh, I was thinking exactly what uh, what you articulated. So that's fantastic. Oh yeah. Well, well, there's a great Hamilton music scene here. We could talk about that, but we'll do that another time when we have a little more time. Uh, you got a lot of ground covered at the meeting, uh, of course, with Hamilton City Council. And, and I wanted to start with the encampments because I mean, homelessness and, and, and the resulting problems that they can be caused in municipalities uh, has been an ongoing problem. It's not new. Uh, and like so many other things, uh, it existed before the pandemic, but the pandemic exacerbated the problem. And we saw a clear evidence of that. Uh, talk to us about council's approach to this right now, because invariably uh you're as we've talked about in the past the, the city is dependent on federal and provincial legislation for a lot of the stuff uh but when it doesn't work and it doesn't seem to be working uh, the responsibility falls to the municipality yeah it absolutely does and and there's a there's a lot to uh uh, to kind of talk about when it comes to the encampments issue. We know that it's a, a complex and very multifaceted uh, issue. Uh, we, the other day, had uh, yesterday, I believe it was, honestly, one day it runs into the next uh, uh, around the GIC committee meetings, but uh, we had a number of very impassioned uh, uh, folks uh, provide delegations to, to the committee. Uh, and then, uh, of course, we had so many items on the agenda uh, that uh, the, the committee decided that 
that this is a, this is something that's going to take some focus and some concentration. So the decision making points have been uh, sent to a, a meeting on February 1st. Yes, we want to address this as, as quickly as possible, but we also need to give it the time and thoughtfulness that it deserves. Uh, and so there's there's no doubt that the, the alignment of provincial health and housing homelessness investments uh, to provide permanent housing and, and supports for vulnerable people uh, needs to be uh, it needs to be addressed. We, we continue to lobby other orders of government in that regard. But you're right. There are things that we need to do here in Hamilton uh, to uh, to to provide supports, uh, to create uh, opportunities for uh, for, um, a, you know, access to support programs. Uh, and uh, we're going to continue that hard work and, and try to do that in a way uh, that's um, uh, that's that's got a humanitarian lens. I think that's right, let's what cut I to the bottom. Let's cut to the bottom line here. The federal government's got to step up a lot more than they have. I mean, uh, I can remember, and I, I, you, I know you will too. It was about twenty-five years ago, where the first time I went to a Federation of Canadian Municipalities conference uh, in Halifax, and the key issue that year: housing, affordable housing. That was like twenty-five years ago, and the federal government, of course, were all there, and uh, and that was the cry, and and and, and Hugh, and what are you guys going to do about it? And here we are, twenty-five years later, still asking them, what are they going to do about it? I mean, uh, at one point in the in that interim, of course, as you well know, they even got out of the business altogether and simply said, "It's your problem, not ours." Uh, they've got some catching up to do, and it's going to take money. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. They, they, first of all, they do have a lot of catching up to do. And I think I might have been at that Halifax yes, conference you were. with you when we were both counselors. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but the, but the bottom line is, uh, you're right. Not only has the federal government kind of walked away, they're, they're trying, I think, to get back into providing some supports to, uh, to municipalities, certainly that's what they're uh, they have been trying to do uh, in the last little while. Uh, but but what we need to have is the provincial government at the table as well. And as you identified, the housing keeps getting downloaded from one order of government to the next, and it ends up at the order of government, the municipalities that have the least capacity, the least fiscal capacity uh, to um, you know to, to build the housing uh, without the support of the other two orders of government. So I, I do hope that we can get some movement on this. Certainly. The investments uh, for uh, in Hamilton for housing and homelessness have been, uh, geez, about over six hundred uh, over six hundred million dollars uh, between two thousand and nineteen and two thousand and twenty two. But yeah, that's that's extensive, and and it it, it increased uh, obviously over those couple of years uh, from previous years because the the need and demand uh, continues to get worse. So there, there's just no doubt that that's uh, that is it is complex, but we do need all orders of government to uh, be at the table. And one of the, uh, the pieces of legislation that you want to move on, and it actually goes back to one of your uh, campaign uh, planks uh, during the mayoral race, and that's uh, uh, for more transparency. And uh, my understanding is that the uh, the motion that you're asking for here is for the city auditor to undertake and oversee an audit of the administration of the 2022 municipal election. Uh, and there's an element to this. Maybe you can explain uh, the intent of, of what you'd like to get done here. So, yeah, thanks, Bill. I appreciate uh, I appreciate that you raised it, and I appreciate the support of uh, the Indiana support of council on, on on two different issues. One is the audit of the election, uh, and that is because we saw uh, so so the stated goal um, at the municipal level was to have a, an increase in participation in the election. In other words, a higher voter turnout. We know that that didn't happen. We know it didn't happen in in Ontario writ large and all of the municipalities that make up this uh, uh, the, the province, but. Um, 
we had some bumps along the road when it came to how the election functioned. Uh, and so I've asked for the auditor to look at uh, the the election uh, and, and to not only look at it from, um, you know, from the auditor's perspective, but also engaging uh, candidates that were successful, that were unsuccessful, the, the teams of the various campaigns, uh, the the public, uh, because uh, there there were bumps along the road, and then of course on election day uh, we had uh, some real problems, and so this is a way to kind of, to kind of reinforce that. Um, our democracy have to, has to function uh, for us to uh, for for our citizens to feel uh, that they um, uh, that that they they're confident in uh, in the results of an election, and so that's uh, that's that piece. The other one on the transparency again. This is to respond to some of the things that I heard, but certainly a lot of other uh, candidates heard not only during the campaign but for some time now here in our city uh, that um, access, uh, accountability, transparency uh, are, are something that people are are maybe not very happy with. With, uh, in regards to the how the city engages the community, and uh, so a community-based process uh, to uh, a task force to kind of unpack all of that, define it, and then bring resu- uh, resolves or resolutions or you know uh, recommendations to council is uh, is also in the works. So, so the concern from your standpoint is is information's not getting out there, or people that have questions are not having those questions answered. What where, where are you focusing here? Well, I'm not. So that's that's a great question, and uh, and the, the the idea is that I what we passed at uh, committee yesterday, and hopefully will be ratified next week at council, is the idea that if council defines what the concerns are, then we will come up with solutions that satisfy the concerns that we identify. The, the point of this task force is for it to be rooted in community. So it will be it will be led by community, it'll be led by citizens, uh, residents of Hamilton, and they will be defining what the, the concerns are. They're going to put meat on the bone in terms of what some of these concerns are that have been raised. And then they will be uh, tasked with uh, providing recommendations to address the community concerns that they've identified. So are they going to be part of the process of, for instance, agenda setting? Um, uh, you know, usually it's a staff or enterprise to do that. Are they going to, uh, the, the planning department, the, you know, the public works department, are they going to be seeking public input before they put agenda items together? No, no, it's I, I, this this particular exercise um, is not that granular at this point. Uh, what what it might say is, for example, not not so granular as putting agenda items on, onto the council or the committee agendas, but uh, something like you know, here's here's some of the challenges we have with the public information set- centers that get uh, organized um, when there's a big initiative happening with the city. Here's what we recommend as being uh, ways to engage uh, community in um, you know in in matters of importance. And and so again, it, it's it's a bit of a, a higher level look at how to uh, how to satisfy this sense of of uh, of lack of uh, of effective engagement or or engagement that people feel uh, was um, you know was was actually hearing uh, what they had to say. I uh, got to leave it there. I know your time is tight, and uh, we want to hook up with the the premier in just a couple of seconds. I'm always interested to see when he talks about healthcare. Uh, I'd love to pursue this again, and, and and as you know, Andrea, the the last number of mayors, of course, have always uh, participated in in our town halls here on this program, where you open the lines up and you have that direct link with uh, the people of the city. So uh, we'll have those discussions and see if we can find some uh, some common times for those. But thanks so much for this today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely, my pleasure, and look forward to town halls. Take you care, Bill. Thank thanks you. Thanks again. 
Hamilton Mayor uh, Andrea Horvath uh, with uh, her uh, quick reviews about what she wants to do with transparency. And that's about a 45-minute discussion. We just don't have time for it right now. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.